I know that we've talked about a lot, but believe it or not, there's still a whole lot more. And there's a whole lot more of awesome information and history out there. And so I want to try to jump right in. I'm going to do a two-part session. So uh, if you plan on skipping out after the meal or before the meal, you're going to miss the, the thrust of this. Amen. I'm going to set the stage for uh, what we want to look at. And then afterwards in the afternoon, we'll come back and we'll try to tie it all together and hopefully make some sense of just everything that took place here in America. Obviously, there's a whole lot more than we'll be able to cover, but I hope that this will make some sense to you. I want us to look for just a moment at verse number 19. And we'll read verse 19 down through verse number 21. First Peter chapter number 2, the Bible said, For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? <clears throat> but if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. So this passage not only reminds us that there is going to be suffering, and Peter talks quite a bit about these things, but there not only is going to be suffering, but uh, we are to take that suffering in a particular way. And what he says in reference to that is in verse number 20 in the middle there, he said, you take it patiently. But then he said, okay, that's for being buffeted for your faults, but when you do well and suffer for it, then God expects us to take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. You know, it's easy to understand uh, when we get buffeted, when there's problems because of something we've done, but then when we're following God and the problems come, God said, I want you to take it patiently. I would submit to you that the people that we're going to look at today, uh, in many, many cases, and for the most part, uh, these were people that suffered wrongfully, but they took it patiently. And they took it so patiently that they were wise enough to, in a very constructive way, put their minds together and figure out how they could win religious liberty for every citizen of our country. Now, just because uh, Rhode Island uh, was placed upon a platform of liberty and then a constitution was drawn up doesn't mean uh, that liberty of conscience was guaranteed. That First Amendment was something that had to be added. Now, I want to tell you the story about how all that worked out and how the Baptists were right in the middle of it. Amen? And so let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump in here. And I ask you again just to keep your eyes on the screen there. Uh, if we could turn that backlight off today, too, that might be helpful. I'm not sure. Hopefully, you'll be able to see things today. But uh, we'll let him do that, and then we'll, we'll have a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful today for the opportunity and privilege we have to be here. Lord, we pray one more time that you would help us to take a good look at what you have wrought. Uh, that is uh, clearly something that you want us to do in Scripture, to look back and see your invisible hand working in the assemblies of the righteous, working in the churches. And Father, help us to be mindful today that Baptist history is not about bragging about people or what men have done, but Lord, it is to see the evidence of your hand working in the churches that we might know where we came from, what you did, and that we might draw strength and understanding that as you worked in those assemblies and you used those people, you can and will work in our assemblies today, and Father, you will use us. We know the devil's tried to win a great victory by telling us the Baptists never did anything, uh, that we never accomplished anything, that we're worthless. And Father, we've seen already this week how that's just not the case. So help us to draw inspiration from this, uh, Lord, to just want to kick a dent in history, 
and to be used of you in a mighty way to further your kingdom, to see souls saved. Lord, I pray that you'd get great glory unto yourself uh, from everything that is said and done today. Thank you for allowing us to meet in the house of God today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to go ahead and jump in. And uh, we've been looking at a little bit of, uh, again, just a dissertation in reference to the book. And uh, we talked about uh, contributions of the Baptists in three different areas. And we haven't looked at the military part of that. There's just not enough time to do that this week. But um, we looked at the political part. The first part, you remember, was John Clark and bringing that uh, liberty to America and entrenching it into the Rhode Island experiment. But I want to go a little bit further now and find out how that got transferred into our government as the new United States of America moving on from the colonial era. So let me start, if I may, in Virginia. And can I just say this? I think I may have mentioned this, but there's no history as rich as the Virginia Baptist history. This is my very favorite Baptist history in America to talk about. But revival breaks forth under the separate Baptists in Virginia. So I want to take you back to about 1758. And we talked, uh, you know, whole, spent a whole evening on the separate Baptist revival. If you think about that separate Baptist revival, you can break it down uh, into different realms or different legs or arms. And so Shubal Stearns would have been the undisputed leader of that separate Baptist revival in North Carolina. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And uh, then when you go into South Carolina, and then we talked about going across into Georgia, uh, his brother-in-law, Daniel Marshall, his son Abraham, and uh, then other marshals in the future would continue that legacy. But that separate Baptist revival spread down across the South that way. You may remember when we talked about the separate Baptists traveling through uh, Virginia, uh, before they ever landed down there, they received letters. And while they were there in Virginia, there's a couple different places they stopped for quite a while. One of those places was in the northern part of Virginia. And then one of those places was right near the southern part of Virginia. And uh, it was right near this place, Dan River. And uh, there were converts. Uh, from that time they were there, that short space, people had gotten saved through that. So once they landed in Sandy Creek, they would send uh, Abraham Marshall, or Daniel Marshall rather, and his son Abraham and others, and they would go up and they would try to strengthen the group that was there, ultimately that a church might be founded of the separate Baptist brand right there in southern Virginia. And so that's what we're looking at right here. We're looking at this man uh, going back up, Daniel Marshall and others, uh, some young firecracker preacher boys with him, and establishing a church there. Now, uh, the undisputed leader of the northern arm of the separate Baptist revival, at least on the east coast, would have been this man, Colonel Samuel Harris. Now, uh, I want to talk to you about Harris and a lot of others, but may I just say of Samuel Harris, he is probably the greatest used and yet least known evangelist in all of history. Uh, most people have never heard of his name. Uh, even those called, so-called church historians, etc., in our Baptist churches have no clue who this guy is, how important he was, and exactly what he accomplished. Let me explain it to you this way, and then I'll try to outline, uh, bring bring to life the outline that I give you. But uh, understand, if there is no Shubal Stearns, uh, then there is no Samuel Harris. Now, Samuel Harris is right in the midst of it. If there is no Samuel Harris, uh, then there is no John Leland, there is no influence on James Madison, and there is no First Amendment to our Bill of Rights. Now, how does all this work out? Well, you'll notice in 1758 that God would save the man we call the Shubal Stearns of Virginia. His name was Colonel Samuel Harris. He was a, a militia commander and a stately gentleman. So here's a guy, he's got a career, he's got prestige, he's got power, he's a stately gentleman, people look up to him, and so, you know, according to the world standard, he kind of has everything going for him, has no idea what God is about to do in his heart. 
Samuel Harris's background, he was born 1724. He became later known as the Apostle of the Virginia Baptist. He served as Sheriff, Justice of the Peace, and a Colonel of the Virginia Militia. He was gloriously saved under the ministry of the famed Murphy Boys. He was then baptized by Daniel Marshall. So the story goes like this. Harris was uh, visiting some forts dressed in full military garb when he decided to stop and hear Joseph and William Murphy preach. As he listened to the Murphy Boys preach and exhort, he fell under deep conviction. Now, there's much I could say here. I don't want to keep you long. It's Sunday morning. I could go on forever about this. The truth is, he had no idea what was going on. He didn't stop to hear preaching, but he stopped because there was a commotion. There was a crowd gathering at a house. He wanted to make sure it wasn't any unauthorized authorized activity. And so he stopped and went inside and he found out they were having an unauthorized church service. Well, instead of just breaking it up, he goes and sits in the back of this church service. And there's these two young firecracker preachers who had gotten saved at Sandy Creek. They're called the Murphy Boys. Now, uh, it's interesting the way the separate Baptists were. They're very unusual, highly unorthodox in reference to what we'd think of today uh, in the way that they preached and such. First of all, it was the time of George Whitfield, and a lot of those separate Baptist preachers copied George Whitfield. They were loud, Holy Ghost-filled hollerers, and they went on for an indefinite amount of time. Thank you, amen. I, I mean, does that vindicate me right there? And Spurgeon was portly. You're welcome, amen. But anyway, and I'm not a Calvinist, all right? No, I don't own cigars. I will be ministering to Cubans, however. But uh, uh, there's been a, an awesome book written about these guys as several histories that record different things. One of the things, for example, is like Samuel Harris was so sensitive to the Holy Spirit, there were times, you know, he'd go on preaching in, in, in uh, open-air meetings and such for weeks, and there were times he'd get up and he'd say, I don't think God is with me tonight, and he would sit down. Somebody else would have to preach. There are other times when one man would get up and preach himself to exhaustion, the crowd not wanting to disperse the other man, almost like tag team wrestling. He would jump in and start right where that man left off, and continue to preach. And then there's a lady, I think she's from Switzerland, she actually wrote a book on Appalachian Christianity. It intrigued her so much. And the book is actually called Breaking Loose Together. And the story's told of the times where separate Baptists would get up, and one would preach a little while, and then the other one would preach a little while, and the other one would preach a little while. And they literally called it Breaking Loose Together, and they were just preaching machines. Amen? And so I can't imagine what he was dealing with, you know, the first time probably in his life, hearing a clear presentation of the gospel from a young Holy Spirit-filled preacher, but the, the response was hiding himself behind a nearby loom. He tries to hide and tucks down behind that, but this did no good. Soon he cast off his sword and other military pieces. He prostrates himself over a pew. When he was saved, he arose shouting, glory, glory, glory. The history actually records that as he came down the aisle, foggy-eyed, he dropped his sword and threw off his jacket and he prostrated himself in the front there where they were preaching. And uh, after a while, they uh, one guy said, Said he thought that he had gone into a uh, gone into a trance or something. He'd been down. That's just the terminology used. He's down there about 20, 30 minutes, and all of a sudden he jumps up and shouts, "Glory, glory, glory!" He got gloriously saved. And it's interesting for many reasons, but it's interesting first of all uh, because you know he came under real Holy Spirit conviction. Nobody said, "Come down here, pray this prayer." He just went down, cried out to God, and got saved. But then, as you see this mountaintop salvation, that's really kind of symptomatic or emblematic of the way that the rest of his ministry would be. It was a mountaintop ministry. This guy would preach all through Virginia and birth numerous churches. In fact, as many as 60 
or more churches are credited to his ministry. He pastored at times three and four churches at a time. He would ordain dozens of men to the Baptist ministry, help organize churches that he was not personally responsible for starting. And uh, there were times when, in fact, 20 years later, you still see him in Virginia making the circuit and preaching, and you'll find meetings breaking out with 100 and 200 people saved. It was his testimony that told us of times where he had never said heard so many people crying out, what must I do to be saved, where they'd be up till 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning dealing with people, and he'd have to go crawl somewhere in a field and hide so people wouldn't be coming to him and asking him to minister to them. It was just a time of a massive revival. If you don't believe me, I want you to consider this for a moment, the magnitude of the amount of people getting saved and just how this shook Virginia. Virginia is a completely Anglican colony. They are so strict and stringent, they are fining people, tarring and feathering people, drowning Baptist preachers, they're throwing Baptist preachers in jail, confiscating their lands, doing all kinds of wicked things to them. But in about 20 years, prior to 20 years being expired after that, you see this now, uh, this Anglican colony literally transformed into a bastion of Baptist liberty. It's flooded with Baptists. In fact, it's so flooded with Baptists that I get to tell you a story about their influence this morning that is absolutely phenomenal. Well, how did that happen? How do you change an Anglican colony into a Baptist colony in just 20 years? Well, it's a real biblical revival of preaching and birthing New Testament churches. And by the way, his manner was as the manner of all the separate Baptists were. They weren't just going out vaguely preaching and saying, have a nice day, glad you're saved. They were organizing them. They demanded an order to it. They wanted deep water baptism. They wanted church membership. They wanted people to be responsible and accountable. They believed in church discipline standards. They believed in standards of leadership and standards of conduct for church members. In fact, you can go back through the old Baptist histories and there's some funny things. And I'll tell you, man, if we had those kind of standards, we probably have empty churches today. Amen. I think about one lady. She got church for having a bad attitude. Amen. One guy excessively beat his horse and they threw him out of church and, and there's a a lot of things like that, but there was great revival taking place under his ministry. There's a depiction of what Harris may have looked like the day that he rode up, not knowing that God was going to arrest his attention. Amen. He went everywhere preaching the gospel and planting churches. It is believed he planted over 60 churches. Now, Robert Baylor Semple is probably the most sober-minded historian in American history, maybe uh, saving for uh, possibly Isaac Backus, the, the first true Baptist historian in America. But it's not a Cathcart where every Baptist was the greatest Baptist in some particular realm. He didn't use great flowery words, and he didn't exaggerate his history. He was more of a Sergeant Friday, just the facts type of historian. And so that being said, when you understand who he is in reference to other historians and his character, I want you to see what he said about Harris. This is not a stretch. He said, The excellency of Harris's preaching lay chiefly in addressing the heart, and that perhaps even Whitfield did not surpass him in this. He was a man of the greatest personal force. He seldom failed to stir an audience, his eyes appearing to pour forth streams of celestial lightning, which whithersoever he turned his face would strike down hundreds at once. Now, that's absolutely amazing. What he's talking about is these open-air meetings where the camp meetings began to develop, and people just forget everything and come out, and massive crowds came 
came. There was a crowd that came just to see what was going on with the other crowd. There was a crowd that came because they wanted to hear the word of God. There was a crowd that came because they wanted to get their lost relatives there. There was a crowd that came because they wanted to cause trouble. But you had massive amounts of people. And as he began to preach, God would save hundreds of people at his open air meetings. And this began to flood Virginia with new converts. James Ireland. Now, Who's James Ireland? Let me go back because I don't want you to jump ahead. But James Ireland uh, was a serious, sober-minded preacher. We'll get to him in just a little bit. He's going to sit in jail for conscience sake. But he is so interested in getting ordained by Shubal Sturds that he rides a horse to death trying to get down to Sandy Creek and has to get another horse to get back home. Amen? But this man was an imprisoned preacher. He knew what it was to suffer for Jesus constantly. They tried to kill the man on several occasions while he was in prison and even after his imprisonment. James Ireland, who knew Harris well, said this of his ministry. I saw him ordained, and a moving time it was. He was considered a great man in the things of time and sense, but he shone more conspicuously in the horizon of the church during the time of our sweet intercourse together, so that he was like another Paul among the churches, no man like-minded with him, who like a blazing comet would rush through the colony or state, displaying the banners of his adorable master, spreading his light, and diffusing his heat to the consolation of thousands. Hence the subtitle on my booklet is Virginia's Blazing Comet. Amen taken right from one of his contemporaries. By the way, this was where Ireland was supposed to get ordained. They chose not to ordain him at that time, but Samuel Harris got ordained, and this is the instance in which Ireland killed his horse trying to get there. But the man, again, was like Paul. Everywhere you look in Virginia, in fact, his effects are so intense that this coming fall, when we tour in Virginia, I'll have the privilege of driving down what I call Samuel Harris Lane. And it's a series of old country roads, and just about everywhere you look, there's either a church that he started, a great man that got saved and birthed a church, some church he organized or something like that. All down the north central part of Virginia, the effects of his ministry are just seemingly everywhere. Virginia was transformed by his preaching. You'll notice as he traveled, the heart of Virginia began to fill up with Baptist believers. However, there was another phenomenon And that's that spot right there. Now, uh, I want you to remember that, by the way. Let me go back there for just a second. We're going to come back to that. And that section right there is going to be vitally important because this place is going to be intensely concentrated with new converts. In fact, there are numerous Baptist churches and Baptist people that are going to pop up in this area, not only from the separate Baptists, from the Philadelphia Association Baptists as well. There's going to be all kinds of Baptist people that are intensely concentrated in this area. And that's going to be important a little bit later. We'll come back to that. There's a depiction from the Virginia Baptist Historical Society archives uh, of what one of Harris's camp meetings probably looked like. Now, uh, the truth is that the Virginia Baptist Historical Society is probably one of the greatest places you can go anywhere in America to see your Baptist history displayed in prints and archives. They have old books. They have artifacts. Uh, We'll get to in a little while, but they have the ladle to the traveling church. Now, you may remember that, the ladle they use as this church traveled over to Kentucky, and we'll talk about that here in just a little bit. But uh, the Virginia Baptist Historical Society has a has a, a, a pact with the University of Richmond. Now, how could a liberal university allow this? Well, not only is it on the campus of the University of Richmond, it's the tallest building on the campus of the University of Richmond. It's housed inside that building. So if you ever can't find it, you really want to go, just look for the tallest building. And you'll remember what I said, it's up on a little knob and you'll find it. But uh, they have done a, a series 
of original prints that depict scenes in our Baptist history. One of the awesome things about going there is they, they uh, commission these wonderful artists, these professional artists to paint these, and they'll walk you around and show you the whole history of Virginia. I have the privilege of being able to share some of those prints with you today from there and from some other places. So this just gives you kind of an idea of where some of these prints are coming from. Samuel Harris, well, there in southern Virginia, uh, in south central Virginia, uh, Samuel Harris is now buried, but there's not much left for him. Nobody really knows who this guy was. There's this monument. You can go see this. This is at the County Line Baptist Church, one of the churches he pastored in his ministry. And, uh, of course, you could read, it won't take time for that. But he's buried in this obscure clump of trees. Now, this is near rural Chatham, Virginia. And I can't really explain where that is other than to say that I could show you it on a map, but it's, it's extreme south and central Virginia. Now, this is, you have to take a road out to the middle of nowhere to find the road to get to this place. That's literally where it's at. Uh, but, but it's a clump of trees. And why is that? This is a farmer's field. And they did mow this down because this is the old uh, Harris family cemetery. Now, the man that bought it in recent years, I want to say recent, probably 15 years ago, uh, he's kind of a, a drunk and such, and I'm just being honest with you, and uh, he would not allow us to erect a big marker, but all the tombstones, they get swallowed up in the ground, and you'll see a little jagged rock. Uh, you don't even know if it was a tombstone or not, but we know he's buried in here, and the history records that for us, but his tombstone was completely gone. So you could go here, and you just say, okay, I'm here where Samuel Harris is buried, but our society will do what we can. So he did allow us to lay a flat granite marker. And so this is just some of the work our society does. I'm not sure if I showed you anything else during this conference, but uh, this is some of the things we do. So something like that just, I mean, that costs $1,700. And uh, so that's just some things we can do. It looks a lot nicer now. We have it garnished with stone around it and such, but this is what it says. Virginia's Blazing Comet serves as, as church warden, justice of the peace, sheriff Burgess of Pennsylvania County, colonel of militia, and captain of Fort Mayo. Harris was saved in 58 and baptized into the membership of the Dan River Baptist Church by Daniel Marshall. He was ordained to preach in 1769. Harris moderated the first separate Baptist association in Virginia. He became Virginia's undisputed leader of the separate Baptist revival, which had spread northward from North Carolina. He was also instrumental in the planning of as many as 60 churches in Virginia. He saw thousands converted under his powerful preaching. Dozens of men who were saved became Baptist ministers. Harris laid his hands on countless nation services. Through his church planning and evangelistic preaching efforts, the colony of Virginia, then controlled by the Anglican Church, was transformed into a Baptist stronghold. This in turn would set the stage for the Baptists of Virginia to win the battle for religious liberty and help establish the First Amendment. May every citizen of this nation, and especially the Baptists, ever hold the memory of this man of God in their hearts with fondest affection. Now, who got saved under his ministry? I'm going to have to fly. You're just going to have to jump in and hang on. Amen? All right. Uh, this guy, Lewis Craig, you can see where he was located. This is the Upper Spotsylvania Baptist Church that's developed under his ministry. Who was Craig? He was born in Orange County, 1730. He preached in the eastern part of Virginia, saved under Harris, planted at least three churches in Virginia, was repeatedly persecuted. Patrick Henry rode 60 miles on horseback to secure his release from prison. On one occasion, he and some other Baptist ministers. This is a picture from the Virginia Baptist Historical Society, the man with the white uh, sleeves coming out of the vest. Uh, that is Lewis Craig. As they were traveling through the streets that day under arrest for the, for the sin or the crime of disturbers of the peace, 
preaching contrary to the state church. They sang a song to their captors. You see the jailer on the right and the constable there behind and on the left. And uh, But they were singing, Broad is a road that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Narrows the way which leadeth unto life. So they sang the gospel as recorded through the streets on their way to the Fredericksburg jail. One of the complaints against them in the official records was, quote, they cannot meet a man on the streets without ramming a text of scripture down his throat. Amen. Would to God we'd be accused of that once in a while. Amen. Well, he was in prison for preaching, continue to preach through the jail bars. There's the modern day church. They now call it Craig's Baptist Church. Patrick Henry defended them. Now, Patrick Henry's Red Hill is also in South Central uh, Virginia. You can go there to Patrick Henry's Red Hill. His law office, the estate, and all the, the house and everything is there. His gravesite is there. There's a nice uh, big bust of Henry when you come in. Great history, tons of books. It's just a really neat place to go. And uh, we've been there on numerous occasions. But I went there several years ago and I was doing research, trying to authenticate uh, the actual wording of what Patrick Henry said when he defended these Baptists. And I talked to a gal there. She had a master's degree. I say this tongue-in-cheek in Patrick Henryology, amen. Uh, her her uh, master's thesis was on Patrick Henry's life, and his final debate was just right not far from there. And uh, But anyway, a lot of things I could say about Henry. He was a tall giant of a man. He had the ability to speak and speak so quietly that you'd be on the edge of your seat. And boom! He would lift his voice and people would jump back and he would shock them half to death. And if you go to the church where he made his give me liberty or give me death speech here in Virginia, they have a man literally uh, dressed up like Henry, a tall older gentleman, and does an awesome job. And it just about puts you in tears, if doesn't put you in tears, listening to this. Well, he rides 60 miles, he hears about the Baptist, decides to defend them pro bono. Not because he's a Baptist. Again, he's a Presbyterian by his own confession. However, he understands that liberty, all of us rise or fall on unfeigned liberty. Amen? And if it's not liberty for all, it's not liberty at all. And so he was defending liberty, and so he wanted to go and help the Baptists. Patrick Henry rode 60 miles. He entered the courtroom and was seated. After the indictment was read, he arose and addressed the judge and jury. He listened to the further reading of the indictment with marked attention. The first sentence of which it had caught his ear was, for preaching the gospel of the Son of God. It was finished, and the prosecuting attorney had submitted a few a few remarks. Henry arose, reached out his hand, and received the paper, and addressed the court. May it please your worships, I think I heard read by the prosecutor as I entered this house, the paper I now hold in my hand. If I have rightly understood, the king's attorney of this colony has framed an indictment for the purpose of arraigning and punishing by imprisonment three inoffensive persons before the bar of this court for a crime of great magnitude as disturbers of the peace. May it please the court. What did I hear read? Did I hear it distinctly or was it a mistake of my own? Did I hear an expression as of a crime that these men, whom your warships are about to try for a misdemeanor, are charged with what? And continuing in a low, solemn, heavy tone, for preaching the gospel of the Son of God? Pausing amid the most profound silence and breathless astonishment, he slowly waved the paper three times around his head. When lifting his hands and eyes to heaven with peculiar and impressive energy, he exclaimed, Great God! 
The exclamation, the action, the burst of feeling from the audience were all overpowering. Mr. Henry resumed, may it please your warships, there are periods, this is one of the greatest dissertations on liberty that's ever been spoken. The great orator of the revolution is probably his greatest speech. There are periods in the history of man when corruption and depravity have so long debased the human character that man sinks under the weight of the oppressor's hand and becomes his servile, his abject slave. He licks the hand that smites him. He bows in passive obedience to the mandates of the despot. And in this state of servility, he receives his fetters of perpetual bondage. But may it please your worship, such a day has passed away from that period when our fathers left the land of their nativity for settlement in these American wilds, for liberty, for civil and religious liberty, for liberty of conscience to worship their creator according to their conceptions of heaven's revealed will from the moment they placed foot on the American continent and in the deeply embedded forest sought an asylum from persecution and tyranny from that moment despotism was crushed her fetters of darkness were broken and heaven decreed that man should be free free to worship God according to the Bible work for this in vain have been the efforts and sacrifices of the colonists. In vain were all their sufferings and bloodshed to subjugate this new world. If we, their offspring, must still be oppressed and persecuted. But may it please your worships, permit me to inquire once more, for what are these men about to be tried? This paper says, for preaching the gospel of the Son of God, great God! For preaching the gospel of the Savior to Adam's fallen race, and in tones of thunder he exclaimed, What law have they violated? While the third time in a slow dignified manner, he lifted his eyes to heaven and waved the indictment round his head. The court and audience were now wrought up to the most intense pitch of excitement. The face of the prosecuting attorney was pallid and ghastly, and he appeared unconscious that his whole frame was agitated with alarm, while the judge in a tremulous voice put an end to the scene, now becoming excessively painful by the authoritative declaration, Sheriff, discharge those men! And the Baptists were released because Patrick Henry came to their rescue. Amen? Hallelujah. Enough to make a Presbyterian shout. Amen? And again, just a few things about Henry. Now, this guy, Lewis Craig, uh, and four others, they were imprisoned, as I mentioned. What about this guy? Well, just imagine if your pastor came to you next week and said, hey, God has called our church to be missionaries. There's a region west of here. It's about 600-mile journey. We're going to go over there, and we're going to start churches where there are no churches in the wilderness. We're going to have to build every cabin and cut out and carve out a living. And, and I hope that you'll join me. This is exactly what Lewis Craig did. God burdened his heart to leave Virginia to find a place of liberty where they could more freely plant churches, a place where they needed churches. And so he went to his congregation, and in September 1781, 600 people would travel to Kentucky. Uh, this is a depiction from the society, the Virginia Baptist Historical Society, what that may have looked like, the traveling church. And uh, just imagine every pot, pan, cat, dog, everything you can drag with you all the way down through the beautiful Shenandoah Valley. You can read the excerpts night after night. We slept under this cluster of trees. We slept at the foot of this mountain. It rained for three days. All the whole story, they get all the way down and they make some makeshift huts before they're going to cross through the Cumberland Gap. People think they're crazy, but they're following now the old Boone Trail that Daniel Boone had carved up through eastern Kentucky, all the way through the mountains. And finally... 
as you'll notice, three months and 600 miles later, they land in a little place called Gilbert's Creek, and he'll preach out of the St. King James Bible he preached out of over in Virginia, and they will start a Baptist church right there at Gilbert's Creek. Incidentally, uh, you'll see Bracken Baptist Church, Minerva, where that yellow dot is. That's, uh, and I'll show you that in just a moment. So by the way, this is not make-believe. This is a, uh, this is a, uh, an official Commonwealth of Kentucky. By the way, went by there to tour one time. The sign was gone. I thought, man, some of these meth heads stole it and scrapped it, you know. And praise God, the state took it and redid it and put a brand new one. It's only a few years old, the new one. And uh, so the traveling church in search of religious freedom, the Reverend Lewis Craig led his entire congregation of 200 Baptists and 400 other settlers from Spotsylvania County, Virginia, and established them here on Gilbert's Creek. This expedition, guided through the wilderness by Captain William Ellis, was the largest group of pioneers ever to enter the District of Kentucky in a single body. And yes, we did have to go find the exact spot where they preached first. Amen. And so out there in the poison oak and ivy, we found it and we had a service. Amen. That's what crazy Baptists do on Baptist tours. I'll tell you, man, there's a lot of tears shed and a lot of great prayer and a lot of, a lot of powerful moments on these tours. I've had preachers say it's the greatest revival meetings I've ever been to are our tours because it's just, it's all focused on, we preach the daylights out of everybody. Amen. It's preaching the whole time. This is that church I showed you in the northern part of Kentucky, that little yellow dot. This is where he finished his course, last church that he pastored. This is called the Bracken Baptist Church in Minerva. This is a, uh, about a 200-year-old building right here. A little over 200 years old, I think, the building is. And uh, there's his graveside, and uh, there on the Arm Brewster Farm. Now, what a, this guy sat in a lot of jails, right? Well, there were a total of 45 Baptist preachers in prison for preaching in Virginia uh, during this time frame, just prior to the Revolution. Now, this fact in and of itself was shocking to me when I first heard this probably 15 years ago. I was like, there's no way this could possibly be. And yet it is, uh, honestly, the fact. Uh, Hannah Lee, uh, just some famous people. By the way, this revival is affecting everybody of all classes. Anglican ministers were getting saved down to the, the pauper, to the prince, you know, every, everything in between. Her great nephew was Robert E. Lee. She was from an Anglican family. She was arrested. Her brother was the presiding judge. He finds her. She don't pay the fine. But there's David Thomas from the Philadelphia Association. He's down there preaching and she allows him to hold services there on her plantation. So people of all classes were being affected. Another awesome guy. And, I, and I'm going to just believe me, I'm going to set the stage. I'm going to get it. So you're going to say, why all these good these guys you're talking about? You're going to understand it later. These are the men who are going to get together and understand. They've got to even put some theological differences aside to become one unified voice to affect their government and to write petitions and to fight for religious liberty. They're quite brilliant, and, and the fact they had the patience to be able to do that. Now, they still debated Calvinism and Arminianism the whole time through, but they worked together because they realized if they see all these signatures and how massive these are, uh, you know, these petitions we bring, they'll just have to listen to us, and we will finally have liberty of conscience. So they were fighting for us, amen? But John Waller, his, they called him swearing Jack Waller, before he got saved. And when Waller got saved, uh, <clears throat> there was such a great transformation in his life. This is one of the reasons, as we'll talk of a little bit later, they called the Baptist witch doctors and soothsayers, and they tried to castigate them and paint them in a horrible light. For example, stay away from the Baptists. If, if you look them in the eyes, they'll put you under a trance and cast a spell upon you. Uh, they, they work by the power of Beelzebub. Same thing they said about Jesus. Uh, they're full of devils and all this kind of thing. This is what the Anglicans were trying to teach. Why would that be? Well, imagine this conversation. Have you seen Swearing Jack? No, I haven't. 
You wouldn't believe it. Three weeks ago, we were drinking gin and having a high old time and playing poker. And just the other day, I saw him out by his fence post and he's preaching about Jesus. It's almost like he's in some sort of a trance, you know. And this guy, I mean, his life had changed. He took back his God-given name of John Waller and the rest of his life was lived for the glory of God. But there were lives that were transformed and people just didn't understand this because Anglicanism had such, had such a stronghold on the people in Virginia. Well, Waller gets saved he preaches through the jail bars and uh, of course uh, he actually sits in four different jails there's about 10 different jails there's everything from Bowling Green to Tappahannock to Chesterfield to uh, let me see uh, Culpeper uh, Fredericksburg there's just all kinds of jails uh, at least 10 that we know of and a lot of these guys took an imprisoned preacher tour of uh, themselves you'll see uh, the organizational service these preachers get arrested and thrown in jail and then six months later you'll see in another county uh, the same names on a sign organizing another church and getting thrown in jail in another county so as I was doing the 2011 video set that's back there the imprisoned preachers tour it dawned on us that these men had already taken the imprisoned and preachers tour. Some of them had visited the inside of about five different jails. I just can't imagine that all for the cause of simply preaching the gospel because it was illegal in an Anglican state church. Here's a Waller being heckled. This particular scene, This remember this horse whip here, it's going to get rammed into his mouth. They're going to attempt to choke him and beat him to death. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, Check this out. These are the, you see the four jails that we know <clears throat> that he was in. And then drop down, Morgan Edwards in his materials towards a history of the Baptist in Virginia chronicled another severe persecution. Uh, it's a little bit too light in here to be able to see this maybe, but uh, endured by Waller. In the spring of 1771, he was holding divine worship in Caroline County. The minister of the parish and his clerk with the sheriff came to the place. The minister rode up to the stage, and as Mr. Waller began to pray, ran the end of his whip into Waller's mouth and silenced him. The clerk pulled Waller down and dragged him to the sheriff who stood at a distance. The sheriff received him and whipped him in so violent a manner without the ceremony of a trial that Poor Waller was presently in a gore of blood and will carry the scars to his grave. Waller, sore and bloody as he was, remounted the stage and preached the most extraordinary sermon, thereby showing that beaten oil is the best for the sanctuary. Waller said he got up, he wiped the blood off his face and, and, and shook off his pants, and he got back up on the platform and preached again with a great degree of liberty. Amen? And so this is what we call that indomitable spirit. Amen? They were suffering wrongfully, but they were doing it very patiently. So they'd sit in another jail, and they, and, and you know, they, much I could say, I'll get, and get into some of this a little bit later. Uh, this is a letter that he wrote uh, for, while he was sitting in jail. Great extant uh, piece of documentation we have. This church, again, is now called after their famous preacher, Waller. There's Waller's church. And this is a, an actual uh, manuscript that still exists today. It's a fragment of a letter. You'll notice down on the bottom, he has, a, uh, let's see, the, the last line, not to preach for fear of sinning against God. Basically, what in essence the judge said to him was, Walter, I'll make you a deal. If you promise not to preach in this county for a year and a day, you can go home to your family. He literally had almost died in the Tappahannock prison. And uh, the Tappahannock prison is on the extreme eastern side, coast of Virginia. And he felt abandoned by God and man. His friends went and pleaded with the sheriff to allow him to get out. They thought he was going to go home to die, but God allowed him to live a lot longer. But he said, you know, I, I can't promise that I'm not going to preach because I fear that I would be sinning against God if I tell you I'm not going to preach and so I'm going to keep preaching but uh, anyway this is another piece of great evidence that we have uh, all that preached were persecuted 
in many different ways. Much we could say there. Here's some of those signs here uh, at the Piscataway Baptist Church. Uh, their first service or organizational, uh, organizational service, several of the Baptist preachers get arrested and thrown in jail. Then you can follow their names on different signs into different places and different prisons where they sat in jail. This is that old debtor's prison in Tappahannock I was talking about. Now, John Weatherford was another one of those great Baptist preachers. and uh, his, his life was absolutely amazing. He was saved under Harris. He preached and was arrested and put into jail at Chesterfield. And he sat there for five and a half months. Now, these preachers were so uh, dead set on winning religious liberty that the uh, the jailers and such and the constables would mock them and say, you don't really believe what you're saying. And they'd say, uh, we're going to open the door. You'll run away. You have no character. Some of them sat in jail knowing the doors were unlocked, saying, no, uh, you brought us in uh, you know, openly. Uh, you're not going to thrust us out privily, just like they said in the book of Acts. We're going to sit here and somebody's going to listen to us. And uh, so that's what happened. So this man Weatherford sat in jail for five and a half months. Well, he didn't just sit in jail. This is the modern day. They have a museum made out of the third prison. And I'll show you in just a moment where you see this. This is a brand new courthouse complex. And instead of tearing down that old building and getting rid of the monument, they did it around it and put it in their courtyard, which is really neat there. Chesterfield, if you look at Richmond, Chesterfield sits right down here in the southwest corner. It's kind of a suburb. Great place to go and look at Baptist history. But this monument is a monument to those that were in prison here. Well, uh, nonetheless... Uh, let me just move on real quickly. There's a sign for him. I won't get into this. So he's preaching through the jail bars in Chesterfield. And you'll notice that man on the bottom left with a knife. Uh, he is literally slashing his hands. There were times when Weatherford would get to preach him and, and they'd wrap a bullwhip around his hands while he was preaching and try to yank his face up and smash it off the bars. But uh, he, he, in fact, it was said of him that he was a man who baptized his listeners with his own blood because he had gashed him so often while he was trying to preach. You'll notice a man beating on drums. That's not a special uh, song for the service, you see. They're trying to drown out the preaching. Well, he would preach and revivals would begin to break out because people saw his earnest pleas and his intensity and his love for God and the power of the gospel began to change people. People began to get saved and they would get baptized by ministers while he was sitting in jail. The Baptists were beginning to multiply because of his ministry. In fact, it was stated some of the greatest revivals in Virginia history took place right outside the jail windows where in Chesterfield there uh, where this man preached, John Weatherford. Well, they got so sick of it, they built a wall around the jail. They put glass and rocks on top of that wall. And uh, to defeat that, the Baptists had a group that they got together and they brainstormed and they called themselves, they began to be called rather, the Bandana Brigade. Weatherford not knowing what time the people were assembled and they not knowing if he was going to be able to preach that day, they would come and they would raise up a, a big long stick up over the 10 foot wall. They'd put a white bandana on it. When they waved it, Weatherford would see it and he would begin to preach out and over the wall and souls would still get saved and baptized through Weatherford's ministry. That's that indomitable spirit, amen. That is suffering uh, patiently and continuing to serve God and love God through it all. Well, he was in there five and a half months and finally, when he got done with his imprisonment, they wanted to charge him his rent because, you know, he stayed in their Hilton Hotel and everything, real comfy and but uh, that's what they did. You had to pay for your time in jail, and he didn't have any money. You say, why? Because he was a Baptist preacher. I mentioned that, amen. But anyway, silver and gold have I none. That's my life first, amen. But uh, anyway, but but he got released and didn't understand why. 
no word of a lie, 20 years later, he and Patrick Henry were in Southern Virginia, uh, where he pastored then. John Weatherford's buried not far from where Patrick Henry's Red Hill is. They began to talk about the early struggle for religious liberty, and it was then that he found out Patrick Henry was the one that bailed him out of jail so that he could go home to his family. So it's just a glorious story. Uh, a lot of stuff you can see there in Southern Virginia. The Shockey Baptist Church and uh, Weatherford's grave. This is across a briar patch, and it's about five foot tall, and it's on private property. But all it says is J.W., John Weatherford. Most people never know this guy lived, but he is a part of that great group of people that won our liberty uh, for us today. Uh, just a, a quick mention, uh, the, they, they wanted to plant churches all over Virginia, so they started sending guys into the, the wilderness of extreme western Virginia. Some of it today, a portion of it is now West Virginia. But uh, long before there was a Sheffy, in fact, about 85 years before there was a Robert Sheffy, who went to this region and preached, Baptists had already been trekked through there and started churches and won souls and preached the gospel. These guys were known as the Bedford Plowboys, amen? Uh, Witt and, and Jeter, and they would go in there and they would bring back Notice as to where churches would started, and they would send ministers and start churches in Western Virginia. Then there's this great guy, Elijah Baker. I hate to say it, but yeah, he's, he's one of my favorites too. You say you have a lot of favorites. I do, amen. But uh, this guy was on the eastern coast of Virginia. Now, uh, this is a little piece of geography. I wish I had a map to show you this, but uh, suppose this is Virginia. There's a little peninsula that comes out on the east coast of Virginia and kind of goes down all, all, all the whole length of Virginia. It's Delaware in the top, that peninsula, and there's a line and, and there's a border and then it becomes Maryland and then it becomes Virginia on the bottom tip of that. And uh, from Roanoke, you can actually take a bridge across and uh, that's the bridge that goes under the ocean, amen. It scares me half to death, but that goes out to that. Chincoteague Island, Assateague, maybe you've heard of those places. Uh, that's out there. Cape May is out there. But Elijah Baker was out there ministering. He started the first church on that peninsula and then started churches all over that peninsula. Well, they threw him in at what was called the Accomac Prison. That's the oldest standing prison of Virginia. It's out on that peninsula. Awesome little, I mean, it's literally from that pew to here and to that wall, and that's the whole size of the prison. There was a little desk and a chair for where the jailer could sit, and then there was a little cage where you threw the prisoner, and that was pretty much the whole prison. But it still stands there today, and it's an awesome place to go visit. Elijah Baker was in that jail for preaching the gospel and starting churches, Baptist churches. Well, while he was in there, a man came and visited him, and uh, the man's name was Squire Batson. Mr. Batson said, sir, I live in a place called Delaware. I know you probably never have been there, but he said, if you ever get a chance to come, we'd love to have you preach to people up there. There's a lot of people that need the gospel. Okay, sir, and they prayed, and he thanked God, and they left, thought he'd never see him again. Well, they got this guy out of jail, and they did what they called, they shanghaied him. And what that meant was they uh, forcibly, illegally imprisoned him on a ship. So they put him on a ship with the order to the shipmaster, leave this vagabond off anywhere but America. Well, that ship began to try to sail, but inclement weather stopped it, and they had to stay on the dock. Well, they tried to get this man to swab the decks and do all this, and he said, no, this is an illegal imprisonment. I will preach and pray and sing, and that's what he did. The shipmaster got saved by the grace of God uh, in talks to Elijah Baker. Well, ultimately, they take him off that ship. And I'm telling you, reality and history is stranger than anything you could ever make up. I wonder if sometimes people think I make this stuff up, but there's documentation for all of it. This is from the Virginia Baptist Historical Society, this very picture. And they put him on another ship. And, uh, and by the way, scholarship is the name of the game up there, really. They are very intense about making sure what they're presenting is correct. But they put him on another ship, and the uh, same thing. Thing happens, inclement weather comes, that doesn't sail. They now think maybe they've got a Jonah on their hands, amen, he's causing this bad luck. They put him on a third ship, find that ship sails, and because of bad weather, they have to dock north of there. 
Guess where? Place called Delaware, amen. He gets off the ship. Anybody heard of Squire Batson? Long story short, sure. Got together with him. He started debating the Methodist preachers and teachers and some of their so-called upperclassmen, amen. And there were a couple Methodist ministers that got saved, and at least one of them and his whole congregation got rebaptized and became Baptist because of the ministry of Baker. He and another preacher friend and some others at times would birth a total of about 22 churches in Delaware, Maryland, and down into Virginia. And so he is definitely uh, an animated character. We don't know exactly where he's buried. He's buried in Delaware in an unmarked grave. Unfortunately, there's another depiction of Elijah Baker. Uh, and this is actually in a children's book that I took this one from, but they didn't have one from the, the adult book. Amen? Now, this guy, James Ireland, I'll, I'll try to close out with him. And you might be saying, but I, you didn't get anywhere. Well, come back in the afternoon. All this is going to make sense because these are the guys that are going to do what I teach you in the afternoon, okay? But uh, James Ireland, okay? This is going to sound weird. You ever hear, you know, you hear a joke, it's like, uh, you know, a Catholic and a Jew and whatever walked into a pool hall or whatever. I mean, it kind of sounds that crazy. So this guy's name is James Ireland, but he's a Scotsman. How that works, I don't understand. Now, the guy on the right, he's a drunk Irishman, okay? And <laughs> yeah, that's why I say some of this stuff is really, I start to think about it, it's really odd, but so they throw James Ireland in prison. Well, first thing happens is uh, they, they come and they attempt to arrest him for preaching. He gets saved, and he's a firecracker preacher. He's a young redhead, and they call him Jamie, and he's preaching everywhere. And so they said, sir, if you preach on this property again, we will come and throw you in, in, the, in the close or the jail. And so uh, the, he, he says, okay, got that. And so what he does is, being a sarcastic Baptist preacher, is he places a table out there with two legs on the property in question and two legs on the neighboring property. To which he decides, you know, here's how I'll respond to this. I'll stand up on this table, and if the constable comes, I'll step over onto this property. And if the landowner comes from this property, I'll step over on this property. But they say, how'd that work? Well, they did come out. They knocked him off the table, beat him up at the table, and they threw him in the cold pepper jail. Amen? But they hate this guy because nothing is nothing's just quenching his spirit. In fact, he wrote his letters to the outside to give you an idea of his spirit. And he said, from my palace in Culpepper's, how he would sign them. Amen. God is with me. Everything's fine. I'm in the palace. God put me in. And that was his spirit. They hated this, so they tried to kill him. How did they try to kill him? Well, they tried to smother him. They put a gunpowder, uh, mustard-type mix up to the door, sulfur, and, and they, they smoked him out. And he had to put his face up to the bars for many hours to be able to live in the midst of the night. Then they had a, a gunpowder plot, but they couldn't get enough. They couldn't afford enough gunpowder. So they buried it underneath the jail, and they blew up the floor of the jail, to which he responded in his own book that he wrote, his own autobiography on his deathbed. He was an elderly man. It's difficult to read. He kind of retracts himself. He should have wrote it in earlier years. But he said, I was sitting there, and I heard this bang, and I saw the floor rise up, but I was in the middle of singing a hymn. So I glanced at it and continued to sing the rest of my hymn. Amen? So they, they try all these things. They try to poison him. And then after they poison him, they say, well, we're going to let you out and have you go stay with this doctor. Well, there were some smart Baptists in the area started questioning and asking around. And it got back to them that the doctor was the one who was providing and poisoning him to begin with. They're fixing to kill him at the doctor's house, you know. And so he said, no, I think I'll just stay right here. So they attempted to kill him on numerous occasions. Well, finally, excuse me, they arrest this guy. Now, this guy's big. Well, Jamie had been dealing with some big guys, but not this big. 
He had another guy that always come up to the bars and as Jamie would preach, he'd grab his hair and yank his face up against the bars and try to rake his nose and his face into the bars. He was quite effective to this little preacher, you know. Well, they throw this big guy in their thoughts are, man, these big guys can just toss him around. This old drunk will kill him. This old drunk hates God, hates church, hates the Bible. Man, we'll be done with James Ireland in short order. Well, they put him in there. And James Ireland has this this kind of attractive spirit where he wins the man to himself. And through acts of kindness, he gives them blankets. And by the way, you didn't you didn't get this was not the hilt, man. This was not your American jail where you have a dietitian to watch out for you in a law office to sue the, those that have arrested you and, and you know a workout room. No, no. This was real jail, okay? And so people, the Baptists in the area, they were handing in food daily and baskets of, of clothing, and they, they handed him blankets and wood for his fire. And so through all these acts of kindness to the big man, he wins them to himself and then gets to share the gospel, and the man that they intended to kill him becomes a convert, amen? But not only does he become his convert, but now he becomes his bodyguard. For when Jamie prayed through the bars and the big gooch came up on the outside, the bigger gooch from the inside, it is recorded, grabbed him by the hair and banged his face (laughs) against the bars at times, and so Jamie could continue to preach, amen? Like I'm telling you, you can't make this stuff up, amen? If I'm a lion, I'm a dying, amen? Well, Jamie finally gets out of jail alive. He was released from jail and allowed to go speak to the governor of Virginia. How on earth did this happen? I have no idea. There's Baptists sitting in jails all across Virginia at this time. Uh, In Williamsburg, he spoke to uh, Lord Botort, the governor. He presented the governor with a list of names of Baptists and Culpepper who wanted permission to have a Baptist church in the place. Obviously, it's going to be laughed, right? It's going to be laughed out of his office. The governor told him he had to go speak to the Anglican minister. Well, it's surely going to get squelched, right? Nope. James Ireland, the Baptist preacher, persuaded the Anglican minister to award his cause, and the governor approved the request. Amen. And so that's amazing. Again, now what if he just quit and said, man, God abandoned me. I served God. He puts me in jail. He didn't do that. He, He suffered grief, and he endured it, but he did it patiently. Amen. Say, what next? Well, you'll have to come back later. Amen.